we're all creative beings and a lot of our creativity gets stamped out of us because we're in a structure that says, you need to put this square peg into this square hole and do it exactly the way that we're telling you to do it. And the truth is, a lot of kids, a lot of people, probably most people, don't really fit that very well. And there's a lot of trauma and pain that is created by compelling people to fit a structure that they're just not wired to fit in. And we hold people accountable to that and we judge them when they fall short of being able to live up to that very limited set of parameters. Welcome to the Sam Gash Podcast. These are conversations with trailblazers, rule breakers, and those who pave their own lane and venture boldly into the unknown. By entering this uncharted arena, they inevitably stumble, yet they all display an ability to innovate and contribute, even when the odds are not in their favor. We skip over their highlights reel and go into the guts of who they are and what they believe in. I'm your host, Samantha Gash. And I'm an endurance athlete, a former corporate lawyer, and social impact entrepreneur. It is my absolute privilege to create the space for these guests. If you found these conversations to be of value or have any feedback, please subscribe, rate, and review, and I hope you enjoy. Well, welcome to another episode of the Sam Gash Podcast. It is with my greatest pleasure that I am releasing two episodes, part one and part two, with the thought-provoking and thoughtful rich role. Now, these episodes that I believe and hope will serve those who do and do not know his story. Rich is this explorer of ideas. He has mastered multiple mediums in which to share these insights from his wildly popular Rich Roll podcast, which is one of the top 100 podcasts in the world with over 100 million downloads. He's a best-selling author. He's a host of wellness retreats. He's been named as one of the 25 fittest men in the world by Men's Fitness. And he was titled the guru of reinvention by outside. He's a globally renowned ultra endurance athlete, wellness advocate, best-selling author, husband, and father of four. He shared his inspirational story of addiction, redemption, and optimal health in his number one best-selling memoirs, Finding Ultra. He has co-authored cookbooks and lifestyle guides with his wife. He's been featured on CNN, on the cover of Outside Magazine, and profiled everywhere from the New York Times to the Wall Street Journal. His latest book, Voicing Change, which is now available exclusively on his website, features timeless wisdom and inspiration from the Ritual podcast. This conversation discusses his shift in the, you know, his podcast in 2020. We look at his personal advice through his experiences on the path towards healing, redemption, and wholeness. We talk about the ever-important issue of finding a sense of belonging, his position on seeking balance, and you know what? I'm not going to talk more about what we discuss. I'm going to go straight into the conversation. But one thing I will say is Rich um, very kindly had me as a guest on his podcast a couple of years ago, and we've stayed in touch ever since. And since that point, I was always looking forward to one day having that opportunity where I could create space for him and hear his story. Um, but I never thought that I would be doing it whilst I'm in quarantine. 
I'm currently in a wardrobe, uh, not only a wardrobe, but my parents-in-law wardrobe because this is the most soundproofing space in the house and also my toddler, Harry, has yet to find it yet. So hopefully that we are doing justice to the conversation and I just know that you are going to love this chat. It was an incredible opportunity to be on your podcast. I think it was in like July 2017, mm-hmm. which seems like an eternity ago. Yeah. And I remember that podcast for many reasons. One, I did a road trip with my you know, recent partner you know, along the California coast and we got to your place. Um, we were driving this massive big blue fan that we hired and I was a terrible driver and I think I scraped the side of the door kind of getting out of your driveway. <laughs> It's not a road trip if you don't do that. Oh, did you see me do that? No, I didn't see you, but uh, I've done that something similar to that many times. <laughs> it was actually the first time that Mark realized that I couldn't drive very well. <laughs> so <laughs> he's given me a lot of uh, flack for that <laughs> for a long All time. Right. But I also remember being in your container at the time doing that podcast and uh, we didn't put the air conditioning on and it was a really hot summer's day because it was. I think it was the first time that you were trying to re- uh, do a live stream via Facebook. Is that right? We we were trying to, that's right. I forgot about that aspect of it, that we'd set yes. up that camera and we were trying to, I, I can't remember whether we were successful in that or not, but I remember very well that it was an incredibly hot day and we were packed into this tiny container doing it and became unbearably hot. And if it makes you feel any better... It's a very hot day here today in Los Angeles, and I'm sitting exactly where I was sitting when we did that podcast, and I just turned off the air conditioner, uh, so it might get kind of hot in here while we do this, which is fine. It'll bring me back to that moment. (laughs) I totally understand, and I will not hold it against you if you need to turn the air conditioning on. You know, in all seriousness, yours is one of the very few podcasts that, you know, over the past six years, I don't just cherry pick based on the guest. I'll listen to the majority of your podcasts, um, even if I haven't had any, you know, previous interest in, you know, the experted area that the guest is talking about. Um, so it is such great pleasure to have you on my podcast. I appreciate that. That means a lot. And of course, I'm delighted to talk to you and honored that you asked me to come on. Oh, well, you know, we were talking about before I recorded, this has been a interesting period of time. Um, there's been immense global uncertainty. Um, and I guess amongst all that space, there's a lot of things that you've actually been doing. You've finished a book called Voicing Change that is out in November. Mm-hmm. I heard that you've moved into a studio for your podcast, which must feel different than being in the space that you've crafted for so many years where you've hosted guests um, from all over the world. Yeah, it has been a little bit of a pivot. You know, for many years, We've hosted the podcast out of my house. You did it in the container, but then we kind of created a proper set in a vacant room uh, in our house. And that's been cool because I get to have interesting people come over, you know, and experience my home and get to meet my family members. And there's something really beautiful about that. But when coronavirus hit, it just didn't feel safe or like the right thing to do to be having people come over to the house. Uh, so, and we were doing everything online for a period. Now we have safety protocols set up so I can do it with people who are willing to do it with me in person, but we moved the set to a studio offsite, um, 
just to, you know, really for safety concerns as much as anything else. But at the same time, in parallel, we are building a permanent headquarters for the podcast as we speak. We have this warehouse, like a 2,000 square foot warehouse that we're building out at the moment that we should be moving into by the end of November. So that's super exciting. That is really exciting. I mean, and this is this all because of COVID or was it kind of in the plans to craft a separate place for the studio from home? Well, the idea of having like a really cool, you know, kind of headquarters was always in the back of my mind, but I think COVID accelerated it. It might, it might not have happened for like another year, but because I had to move it out of my house and then we were in this kind of janky situation where we're, you know, duct taping the whole thing together. It was frustrating. I'm like, we need to have a place for this show. Like it's been eight years. I've built it to a certain place. I think it deserves that. I think the guests deserve that. Um, and so we are just in, you know, we're doubling down and investing in ourselves. And I think the lesson in that is, you know, in the midst of kind of chaos and confusion where a lot of people are at home trying to figure out what to do next, I've been trying to look for the opportunities. Like when everyone's zigging, how can I zag? When everyone's afraid, how can I be bold? And this seemed like a logical thing to do that, you know, is going to obviously cost us in the short run, but I think will benefit us in, in the long run. So I took the kind of, you know, forced repose and moment of quietude to finish this book that's been on the back burner forever and to, you know, begin the process of, of creating this studio. And so I'm excited. Like, it's been really cool in that regard. I mean, and it's been tough, too. There's a lot of, you know, things that have been challenging about, about this moment in time. Um, but those two projects have really kept me engaged in a way that I think had I not been if I didn't have those, that this would have been a more difficult time for me. And I just have to say publicly, like, I'm incredibly grateful and blessed and privileged. Like, during this period of time where so many people are losing their jobs and are trying to figure out how to make a living, um, that I'm able to continue to do this thing that I love doing and also, you know, feeds my family. I mean, there's a, there's a lot about that, Rich. I mean, firstly, is it quite a natural thing for you to you know, in the midst of, as you, as you say, you know, of, of chaos and uncertainty, are you very naturally wired to always look for the positive and to thrive or to craft new opportunity? Or is it a very conscious, deliberate decision that you've had to go about? It's a practice. It definitely isn't my natural <laughs> disposition. You know, I, I'm the guy who's like catastrophizing everything and, you know, walking around with a cloud <laughs> over my head and it's terrible and I'm depressed and I don't want to get out of bed. Like that's, that's who I am without all the work that I have to put into myself on a daily basis to, you know, act differently. So, so much of it is, is compelling myself to conduct myself in contradiction to how I actually feel. <laughs> Um, and I've learned that over time, like that's how you create new neural pathways and that's how you, you know, change not just your, you know, your behavior, but your default mindset and your perspective. So whether it's gratitude or having a sunny disposition or, you know, looking for the opportunity in, in, in the chaos, like these are things that I have to apply myself to, you know, in order to in order to do them because left to my own devices, I, like I said, like I'm in bed or I'm, 
you know, on the couch binging Netflix shows. <laughs> and a little bit of that isn't a terrible thing, particularly in moments. No. But yeah. there's going to be a lot of people who have felt that, and if not on a sustained level throughout this 2020, um, in moments. And potentially they've never felt it before. So when you're wanting to stay in bed, what are you what are you doing to kind of get yourself out of that space? Well, first of all, I think it's important to acknowledge your emotions and to validate them and to understand, like, it's okay. We're in the middle of a fucking pandemic. The world is insane right now. And it's really hard. Even if you have a job and you're privileged and you can pay your bills and your needs are met. Like, I think a lot of people who are in that position feel guilty about not feeling great because, you know, they have things that other people don't. So the first thing is being honest with yourself about how you're feeling and not feeling guilty or beating yourself up because you don't feel 100%. Because this is a really hard, difficult, unprecedented moment that we're experiencing and everybody's gonna have a different response or reaction to it. Now, with that, I think it's okay to lean into those moments of, of you know repose like whether that means like i'm going to stay home today and watch tv or not get out of bed like that is okay in in small doses i think because we need that our bodies are telling us that you know we have to process what's happening in a different way but ultimately we still have to find a way to move forward we have to figure out how to be engaged and excited about life we have to figure out things to look forward to and projects to work on and all I can do is share my own experience, which is basically practicing gratitude, starting my day with a gratitude list and journaling, trying to really connect with the good in my life, and also figuring out how I can be of service to other people. That tends to um, cloud out any waves of despair or depression that I, that I feel from time to time. And then trying to you know, engage my creative sensibility in projects that I've never had time to, to you know, participate in because life is so busy and the pace is so quick. And now we're in a moment where certain things that you, know, you never, never could get to before, you have the opportunity to do that. And again, that's a privileged thing. I understand that. Um, but that's kind of how I've been, I've been dealing with it. I think those insights are, are really helpful for people. And I think we have had uh, a unique quality of space. And I think when, with space, you have the opportunity to be creative, um, particularly if you're in a position of privilege. But on the flip side, you also have the space to feel tired. Um, and I would say this year when I've had a more a luxury of time, I have been able to sit into those feelings of tiredness more than I normally would. Like normally I don't have the the opportunity to go, oh, I'm feeling tired, I'm going to have a lay down because I have to get to a plane or mm. I have to do a talk or I've got, you know, a lot of things that I've got to go to. So I can kind of put those emotions at bay and I think sometimes they accumulate in the background but we don't actually deal with them. So I think with this space, there has been opportunity to reflect on some things that maybe have been working, haven't been working, and we can take that forward in maybe a more productive way. Do you feel that you've been going through that a bit in your way as well? 
Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I think things like, you know, taking the nap or whatever, they just feel so indulgent, right? And if you're doing that, then yeah. you're not, you know, participating in the hustle culture. And if you're not participating in the hustle culture, then who are you, right? And I think there's a collective kind of identity crisis that's occurring right now. I, I, I had Dr. Michael Gervais on the podcast, the other, he's the mm -hmm. most recent podcast that I just put up. And one of the things that we were talking about, or that he was kind of talking about was the difference between uh, a human being and a human doing. Like most of us are human doings and we define ourselves and our identity around what it is that we do. And we're not okay with just being who we are. And right now, a lot of the doing is getting stripped away from us. Like we're not able to move forward in the way that we would like to. And we're not able to ply our trade in a certain regard that gets us the kudos and the kind of escalated career trajectory that you know we set out to achieve at the beginning of the year. And so when those things are stripped away and we're just left alone you know, with ourselves, it can be terrifying because if not for those things, then who, you know, like, who are you, right? And, and, and engaging with that question, tackling that, confronting that is not only scary, it's very destabilizing. And uh, you know, I've gone through various things in my life where I've had to kind of do a version of that. And it's interesting as somebody who's kind of experienced this you know, at, at stages in my past to see other people dealing with it for the first time and how, and how difficult and how challenging it is. And it's breaking a lot of people, like especially um, you know, a lot of, a lot, you know, I think it's more of like a, a male thing as a stereotype, like you are your job, right? So if your job gets taken away or you can't do your job the way that you would like, then who are you, right? And, and, and uh, it's hard. It's really difficult to, um, to, f to figure that out. And everybody has a different, you know, process for doing just that. Well, you're correct. You have experienced this before. And, you know, I remember in Finding Ultra, your, your first book, you know, you talk about being this man of extremes. Um, and that has manifested through many of the stages of your life. And some of those extremes would be considered um, socially acceptable and others might be socially and personally um, destabilizing. Um, <laughs> but you've always said that balance... <laughs> Did you like that uh, really? Yeah, I like that. Way You're trying I'm... to find a very po a, a <laughs> politic way of expressing that. I got it. Keep going. <laughs> I'm going to leave it for you to talk about it, not me. But um, you've said balance has always been that final frontier. And, you know, I think a lot of people wrestle with that, but you've been exploring it for decades now. Uh, where do you feel like you're currently sitting with balance? Fuck balance. That's where I'm sitting with it. <laughs> Fuck balance. I've, okay. I've spent so much time in my life, years, chasing this idea of like balance. How do I live a balanced life? And feeling guilty when I can't measure up to this uh, imagined state of living my life harmoniously, where all the pieces are kind of fit fitting together in a in, you know with a lot of equanimity and i see other people that seem to do this very gracefully i've never been able to do it and the striving to achieve that has led me to <laughs> almost like lunacy and finally i've had to come to a place of of just self-acceptance you know like that 
that I'm just not wired that way and that that's okay too. Um, and I think when you when we when we talk about balance, we sort of have to define our terms. Like my life is definitely not balanced when you're looking at it through the lens of of a typical day or a week or even a month. But if you telescope out and look at it over the course of a year, I think it is pretty balanced. So my pendulum swings at a different cadence or a different rate than the quote unquote normal person, whoever that is. Uh, I tend to, you know, vacillate, you know, back and forth in between you know, intense bouts of concentration or athletic pursuit or whatever it is. Like I'm somebody who likes to go all in on something. And then when it's done, I emerge from that. And then I go all in on the next thing. So I'm sure you can relate to this, Samantha. I mean, I don't know what your perspective is. I'd love to hear it. Uh, but, you know, I just felt like for so people were just like, what's wrong with living a balanced life? You're just an alcoholic. You're just you're basically applying your alcoholic sensibility to everything that you do. And finally, I had to kind of say, yeah, I kind of am, but I'm doing it in a healthier way where I have a self awareness around it. And as long as those um, moments of immersion are not at are not at the at the cost of the, the quality of my life in other areas of of my life that are important to me, then I think it's okay. And I actually think that that my ability to, you know, to be super intense about whatever I'm doing has has been the fuel that's propelled me forward. It's also been my demise and my destruction. But if I can figure out how to channel it in a productive way, um, there's a lot to be said for living that way. I don't know. I don't think I said that very articulately or elegantly, but I think you get my gist. You totally did because I can relate to so much of of your past experiences, particularly when you were younger, um, being a young kid. Um, and there's an intensity that has been trickled through your entire life. But that intensity now, there's a consciousness of where you're placing it through now, your self-actualization. And that's where all the work that you've done is now coming to play. And so, yes, there will be outsiders who will go, yeah, but the way you attack your endurance sport to the way you attack your diet or the intensity in which you release your podcasts, that's just the same way that you used to be an alcoholic. Um, and so I'm sure people always ask you that question, but mm-hmm. the difference is the choice about it now after the work on where you want to be. Yeah, and the other qualitative difference is that the choice to to drink was always the easy choice. It was always the way out. It was always the escape from being present with who I am or connecting with uncomfortable emotions, right? Like, what's the easy way out of this situation? Drugs and alcohol. Now, I can certainly hide behind my work. I could have like an unhealthy relationship with podcasting or writing books or even athletic pursuits. Like there are a lot of people that use those as shields to not have to deal with the rest of their life. But I think my relationship to what I do is really one of grappling in real time with what I'm going through and trying to share that in service to other people and doing it as authentically and as honestly as I can. And to do it at a quality level that I, because it's like out of respect for the audience, like I think, you know, 
it's incumbent upon me to do this in the best way that I'm capable of doing, and I hold myself to a very high standard. And that's the harder choice. Like the harder choice is to put on the running shoes and get out the door or to wake up when the alarm goes off or to go the extra mile and the research that I'm putting into whatever guest I'm going to have on the podcast, et cetera, all the way down the line. Do you struggle to define who you are or what you do? Like if someone was to say to you right now, like, Rich, who are you and what's your job? (laughs) That's a tough one, right? I, I don't know. I yeah. feel like everything I do is in is in search of that answer, and it's an answer that I, I, I can't – I don't know that I could give you a, like a, a pithy, concise, you know, response to. I mean, I think, you know, who are you? It's like I'm a human being having a having – a, I'm a spiritual being having a human experience. I'm trying to evolve yep. and grow, and I'm trying to um, share what I learned along the way in service to other people. I mean, that's, that's fundamentally who I am. What do I do? Uh, I am a, you know, a, a, I would say probably more than anything, um, an educator or an explorer of ideas who uses a variety of media to share that, whether it's podcasting, books, videos, whatever. Workshops, the yeah. whole retreats, retreats, all of it. All that stuff. There's a lot of different mediums Mm. and I think, you know, you you obviously have the consistency of the podcast and then you have these other ones that might be long immersive experiences like writing a book or a retreat, but they're not kind of happening all the time. Correct. You know, I think my my strength is is writing and that's probably what I do the least of, ironically. I'm trying to change that. Yeah. so, you know, if I had to really drill it down, you know, and answer, you know, what is it, what is your profession? I would say writer, even though that's not really how I make a living. Well, let's talk about the new book. T- um, tell me the premise of it, how it came about and, and when it's being released. Sure. So the new book's called Voicing Change, and it is basically uh, timeless wisdom and inspiration lifted from all of the podcast guests that I've had over the years. I've been podcasting since late 2012, so I'm coming up on eight years of doing this, and I've had you know well over 500 conversations, long-form conversations with all manner of interesting people. And it just seemed like the logical thing to do to try to figure out how to canonize some of the ideas that I've been exposed to in, in book form. And... A couple people have done this, like Tim Ferriss did his Tools of Titans book. Uh, I wanted to do something a little bit different. I wanted to create like a beautiful coffee table um, version of the podcast and experience, not just for like the ardent fan, but a great gift and and an awesome introduction for somebody who isn't familiar with what I do that gives somebody a sense of, you know, this world that I'm trying to create through this auditory experience. So basically, it's it's um, excerpts from 50 uh, guests that I've had over the years, including somebody called Samantha Gash, who was kind enough <laughs> to contribute to the show. And we took, we transcribed all of these, these conversations, and we took like the most compelling, interesting parts and, and, and um, put that in the book alongside beautiful photography and 
some really um, lovely graphic design to, you know, just create like a really cool, beautiful book that you, you know, would feel proud to have out on your on your table for guests to look at when they come over. And there's essays. I had a couple of people contribute essays and there's an introduction and stuff like that. It's a beautiful book. And I think um, it will serve people who know you and who don't know you. And I sometimes think I just presume that everyone does. The reality is not everyone has heard of the Rich Roll podcast uh, and doesn't know your entire story. Uh, and, and I wanted it with your permission to kind of go a bit back to your story because when I think of you, I think you are one of the great people at communicating that story of transformation from the lowest lows to the murky in-betweens to reclaiming your health, finding yourself and learning how to nourish not just yourself but also the relationships of the people that are important to you. Um, you've done it through your own journey, but you also extract that through the stories um, of the people that kind of come onto your podcast as well. So I think a lot of people see themselves in you, um, in at least to one of the facets of which you kind of regularly share. Um, I've got to say, like I, myself, I see myself in you. I was a kid that was really bullied at school. Also, I was the last to be picked in sporting teams mm -hmm. because I was really terrible at ball sports. Um, and I was like, became a lawyer and then turned into endurance. So we have right. some kind of beautiful themes of where we kind of connect in. But I think bullying and not fitting in at school is something so impactful in people's past and it carries all the way into their future. And it sticks with them for a really long time of this idea of, the desire to be normal and to fit in. Um, can you maybe share some of your experiences when you were younger and you didn't feel like you fitted in, you experienced some type of bullying and how that manifested later on into your life? Sure. You know, I was from the outset a pretty awkward kid with a very sensitive kind of artistic disposition, um, insecure, uh, insular kind of uh, the kind of kid who could just sit and draw all day and didn't need to be around other people and very awkward socially. Like it was difficult for me to make friends as a young person. Um, I remember going to public school in like first, second, third grade and really struggling academically, um, not really able to make friends and at the bus stop, I would get bullied by the older kids. They'd steal my beanie, you know, like every day, like my winter hat would get stolen and my mittens would get stolen. This would go on all the time. And that continued through my mid-teens. You know, I ended up at, uh, at a boy's school, kind of a prep school where you wear a coat and tie and like ball sports. It's all about ball sports, but football, basketball, baseball mm. and I was terrible at all of those you know I was the kid who was picked last for kickball on the playground I was a disaster at anything you know resembling traditional sports um, and and you know I think I just withdrew like on some level just the you know the trauma of never of just not really understanding how to be in the world just led me to kind of be a really quiet, person who was disconnected from everyone and everything and kind of confused about why it seems so easy for other people to, you know, navigate things that seem very tricky to me. 
And and really, you know, I found my single sole comfort in swimming, which was the one sport that I I did, you know, have some ability in naturally. And, you know, when you're young and you're struggling in other areas of your life, if you have one thing that you're kind of good at or getting some success at, you're going to you're going to double down on that, which is what I did. And I think you know, it's it, it was a complicated relationship that I have with swimming. On the one hand, it saved me. It gave me a very healthy channel and outlet for some of the anger and resentment, the confusing emotions that I was having as a young person. When my head was underwater, it, I was able to mute out all of that noise um, that was so confusing for myself. And I could like be aggressive in the pool, and that allowed me to progress as an athlete. And I learned some really important um, things as a young man, like the harder you work, the more successful you are. And if you can develop that work ethic, you can apply that in other areas of your life. So the better I got at swimming, the better I became academically. My life continued to like kind of improve from that point forward. Um, and this set me up for you know a pretty successful trajectory as a young person. But at the same time, upon reflection, looking back now, I can see how unhealthy this relationship with swimming was. Like I put everything into it and I was really using it just like a drug to hide from other things in my life that needed redress emotionally and spiritually. I mean, you definitely had the that kind of persistence for excellence, pushing to every nth degree to be the best that you could be in swimming. Did you feel that it validated you socially because you were good in the pool? Didn't well. It's, that's an interesting question. I mean, it it definitely validated me in that it gave me some much needed self confidence. Um, I think I was trying to impress like my dad as much as anyone else. I mean, my classmates at school didn't care because swimming was something I did outside of school. So they were barely aware that I was even doing this. Um, and I wasn't really seeking validation from them because I'd already kind of opted out of that entire uh, kind of social structure altogether. But it was for me, you know, I was competing again. It wasn't like beating other people. I was competing against myself. I was trying to be the best version of myself. And I knew that if I could get really good at this, that this was going to be like doors were going to swing open for me. And that's exactly what happened. Like I got into all these colleges. I had my pick of where I wanted to go. Ended up at Stanford swimming with, you know, basically the best swimmers in the world on the best collegiate program in the world at like this you know, unbelievable university. And so I was set up to be like this incredibly successful person by the time I was 17 years old. But then it kind of all kind of went sideways from there. Well, you, you talk about Stanford as it was a place like coming home or it felt, sorry, it felt like home even before you had ever gone there. Um, and it felt like you belonged. I think the concept of belonging has probably never been more important as it is now. Um, people are geographically removed from each other and, and can't, you know, get right in front of each other um, like they used to. You can't travel the way you used to. We're looking at screens all day long. Um, I think the epidemic of loneliness is incredibly high right now. Mental health in many parts of the world is a, a genuine, genuine problem. What was it about Stanford that enabled you to feel like you would belong there? 
I think there was an openness in that environment that was new to me. Growing up on the East Coast in a very, you know, inside the beltway family where everything was about education and achievement and expectations and a very traditional notion of, you know, what a career path for somebody like me needs to look like. Those structures are very calcified. Like, I, I don't know, you know, as an Australian, if you're, you've been to the US and you, I'm sure you understand kind of how these things work on some level, but there's a big difference mm -hmm. between kind of the culture of the, the Northeastern corridor and what goes on in California. And I'd never been to California before. And when I visited Stanford, it was immediately noticeable just how different the environment was like there was a permissiveness and an openness and a friendliness and this sense that anything is possible that you don't have to do things the way this person says that you have to do them that you could actually create your own roadmap like in a very unstated but but palpable way i was immediately aware of that and that was very alluring to me because i think i was trying to escape the prison of expectations that have been placed upon me as a young person and at Stanford I could I could chart my own course but do it in this in a structure in which everybody would approve like oh you're at this amazing university uh, and rather mm -hmm. like I visited Harvard and they were like well you're gonna have to pick academics or or or, or sports like you're not gonna be able to do both at Stanford, the idea was like, of course you can do both. Like, you, you, we'll figure out, we'll try, we'll figure out a way to support you so that you can be amazing at whatever it is you want to be. Like that was, in a nutshell, uh, that's the best way of describing the difference. I mean, for kids that are feeling isolated, like they they don't belong and they can't just leave the school because that's where their parents are sending them. Like, what advice do you feel that you could pass on to them to? cope and manage through that time and those overwhelming emotions. Yeah, it's very difficult. I've got two teenage daughters that are now in, you know, basically in Zoom school and it's terrible. My 16, soon to be 17 year old daughter is in an art high school. So it's all about like practical, you know, application of creativity, whether it's in the dark room or painting, you know, in the studio. And now she's on Zoom from eight to four. It's, t you know, and she's having a really hard time. Meanwhile, you know, to speak to kids that maybe are going back to classrooms, but don't feel like they have a lot of agency in their life. The first thing I would say is, you know yourself best. And all these people who are telling you that they know better, they don't know anything. They don't know anything. You know for yourself. And that doesn't mean that you can't learn from other people, but you have to take responsibility for your own life and you have to take the reins of control. And even if you're stuck in a situation that's not ideal, I would encourage you to try to find your own unique way of making that experience your own and making sure that you are paying attention to your instincts instincts, and, and, and listening to that, you know, very faint, voice inside of you that's urging you to you know explore a certain thing or try a new thing or experiment with this or that um, i think as young people a lot of that 
we're all creative beings and a lot of our creativity gets stamped out of us because we're in a structure that says, you need to put this square peg into this square hole and do it exactly the way that we're telling you to do it. And the truth is, a lot of kids, a lot of people, probably most people, don't really fit that very well. And there's a lot of trauma and pain that is created by compelling people to fit a structure that they're just not wired to fit in. And we hold people accountable to that and we judge them when they fall short of being able to live up to that very limited set of parameters. It's a big world out there. There are so many things that you can do and be. And you know, my whole thing is trying to get people to expand the aperture of possibility and realize that every young person has amazing qualities inside of them. And our job as, as grownups, as adults, is to help identify what that thing is and to support it rather than try to mute it or repress it for the sake of a system. Yeah, because that system is based on uh, perceived convenience. Um, or creating worker bees. makes it easier for people. P pardon? So you know, it, it's a system that was created in a bygone era to create, you know, effective workers in the workplace. And the world has changed, but our educational systems remain, you know, static in that regard. Yeah, and you would have seen it time and time again. And I know we discussed it when I came on your podcast. You know, the people that you meet, they will probably consistently be telling you they didn't fit in when they were kids at school. The things that they were told off for in the classroom are the things that make them incredibly unique and successful right now. And it is very hard to share that with a child that is experiencing trauma for not fitting in and they're told that what they need to do is to fit in to be successful. But if we can both emphasise from our own personal experiences, those challenging moments that point of tension is your uniqueness and you have to hold it within yourself and realize that if you can gently cultivate it and feel self-confidence that those are the things that will hold you in good stead down the track. 100%. I, I don't even know if there's anything that I could add to that. That was so beautifully said. Well, um, Thank you. <laughs> I, I want to look at, I don't really know how to respond to that. I'm not very good at taking compliments, but um, <laughs> I want to look at, <laughs> this is like now an awkward yeah. moment for me on the podcast. Um, I want to look at the influence that we have by other people. And I just, just think throughout all of our lives, we have people that come in for a short period or sometimes for a really long period, and they can positively or negatively impact who we are in that moment or down the track. And sometimes we just never really realize that. So I was thinking of a couple of people in your life that might be worth sharing a story of um, from your perspective. And obviously, it's a perspective of who you are right now in this moment. Um, but I was thinking about your grandpa, who you share names with and many attributes with, if you could maybe tell me how he has influenced your life. Hmm. Yeah, he's, he has influenced my, he's, he's undoubtedly influenced my life more than any other human being that I've never met because he passed away before I was born. Um, but he's held huge sway over me and, and continues to, um, especially this year, and I'll get into why that is in a second. But essentially, my 
mother's father, his name was Richard Spindle. He was a um, swimmer, just like me. He attended the University of Michigan in the late 1920s. He ended up being the captain of the swim team at University of Michigan, which was kind of like the Stanford of its time. It was it was a dominant swimming program under this coach called Matt Mann, who was like a legend of the era. And Richard Spindle set an American record in the 100 yard, 150 yard backstroke, which was an event at that time. Uh, he narrowly missed an Olympic berth. Uh, I think he was fourth at the Olympic trials or something like that. And this is like when they would hold Olympic trials, they would set up lane lines like in a lake, like it was crazy swimming back then. There's like old photographs of his era of swimming. And it was really quite something where they had the full like wool body suits, you know, the, the, like the, that would go over the shoulder and the whole thing. Um, and he's a guy who, who, Continued to stay fit his whole life. He lived in Michigan his whole life and would swim in Lake Michigan. He never smoked. He was never overweight. But he died of a heart attack at, at age 54 um, when my mom was still in college. It was very traumatic for her. Um, and, you know, my mom is a, is, a, is a pretty fearful person overall. And I'm willing to bet that a lot of that fear can be tracked back to, you know, not really working through the trauma of losing her father at a young age. And then subsequently her brother who died in a car accident some years later. In any event, um, I was, you know, I was named after this man that I never met. And without really knowing anything about him, like I gravitated towards swimming and I've kind of had this trajectory in life, not dissimilar from, from his and, you know, when I was inching towards my 40s and sliding into this kind of workaholic lawyer lifestyle and, you know, eating a lot of fast food and packing on the pounds and not taking care of myself, I had a, an awakening, like a, a you know, a, 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 a moment in my life, like a, a, a second bottom, not that different from the bottom in which I realized I had to quit drugs and alcohol, in which I realized I needed to change my lifestyle habits. Like I was 50 pounds overweight. Um, I was, you know, felled by this flight of stairs going up to go to sleep one night, going up to my bedroom where I had tightness in my chest. And it really made me, you know, realize like that I was on a path towards the fate that my grandfather had met, you know, dying at a relatively young age of a heart attack in an era before there were McDonald's and Burger Kings and Pizza Huts and KFCs on every street corner. And I knew that if I didn't get a hold of this issue that I was probably, you know, headed in the same direction and probably quite a bit quicker. Um, and that kind of realization, that connection with this person that I'd never met was an anchor for me and really helped to... Um, firm my resolve over making these lifestyle changes. And that really is what set in motion, like everything that has happened since with adopting the plant-based diet and ultimately, you know, kind of having this second act as an athlete in, in my forties and becoming this, you know, author and kind of, you know, wellness person at large out in the world. And here I am now it's today is October 7th, I think. And I turned 50, mm. I turned 54 on October 20th. So in, a, in like two weeks, 
I'm gonna na- I'm gonna be the age that my grandfather was when when he died. And so I, it it's kind of scary. Like even though I've made all these changes, like there's a genetic component to this, I'm sure. And you know, it's it is you know, I I, I find myself like thinking about him way more over the last six months or so than I have like in the last couple of years. So um, that's a person who, you know, at a very arm's length has had a profound impact on my life and continues to. Yeah, it's, it is so fascinating that someone that we've never met before um, can play such a role in different moments of our lives. And it's, I can't believe that this is the year in two weeks time, pretty much when he was the age when he passed away mm-hmm. and you know, it would be, it, it must be baffling for you to kind of be thinking, you know, how that sits in the world, particularly with, you know, COVID playing out and people with underlying issues being more susceptible um, to this as well. Have there been things, um, obviously, during 2020 with this global pandemic that you've been making sure that you're doing to look after yourself probably in a different way than you have been previously? Yeah, I've definitely taken extra care. You know, this is not the time to sit back on the couch and, you know, eat a bunch of cookies. Like, I've really doubled down on my weaknesses in a way that I never had time to before. Like, you know, I just want to go outside and go running, you know, just go out on the trails Mm -hmm. and just run as as long as I feel like running or ride my bike or do whatever. And I've been doing that for years and years and years. But I realized, like, I started to have back problems and my hips started to feel a little bit janky. And, you know, I just, I, I was starting to feel like functionally not strong. And, you know, I'm not a gym rat. I don't like going to the gym. I don't like lifting weights. Like those are, the, you know, I want to be outdoors. But in this moment, I thought, well, this is, there's no races. There's no reason why I have to go out and like have some crazy volume with my endurance training. Like, let's take this moment and work on those things that you're always overlooking or telling yourself that you don't have time for. So, I've been very consistent in trying to get strong again. So I'm starting to look like Mark. I mean, that's my goal. I'm going to get all buffed out. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I've been like lifting weights and doing a lot of core work and functional strength work. And, and I feel different in my body and it's helped my back and it's helped my hips. So that's one thing that I've been then doing that is unusual for me and something I haven't done in, in quite a long time. I'm taking a lot of... Um, Vitamin, I, I supplement daily with vitamin D, with zinc, and vitamin B12, so I'm really hardcore about that. And I'm arduous about making sure that I get a proper amount of sleep every night. So I, I have to get eight hours every night, and it's like non-negotiable. So that level of self-care and then meditation in the morning has also been really important. So those are things that you know I just I, I'm, I, I take really seriously and... I want to be, you know, at my best in the event that I come into contact with this virus. And chances are, at some point, I will if I haven't already. Um, and I want to be as fit and as capable as possible to um, confront it. I want my immune system to be able to manage it and handle it uh, in that in that case. So, and you know, I'm in the United States of America. Things are insane here right now. So, you know, anything is possible, and you have to be prepared. And not only do all those things that you're doing help you with your physical health, but they also help with your mental health. With In terms of knowing that it's a non-negotiable that you get eight hours sleep a night, how did you kind of work out that's what you required? 
Um, I just know, I know intuitively the difference between how I feel when I get eight hours versus getting less than that. So I've always known that that's kind of like the benchmark that I'm trying to hit. Um, but I've taken that to you know a little bit more of a scientific level. Like I've had an aura ring, um, and now I've now I'm using a, a whoop band, um, which tracks my sleep and tells me. Um, not only how much time I'm spending in REM sleep and deep sleep and light sleep, but also gauges my heart rate variability and my resting heart rate and my respiratory rate. So I can look at all of these biomarkers and calibrate like how much sleep I need, how much rest I need, how well I'm recovering day to day. Uh, and that's really helped dial things in for me. But the WHOOP has validated my intuition, which is that basically I need eight hours and I need at least two hours in REM and two hours of deep sleep a night in order for me to wake up and feel good and at my best. It's so funny you talk about the whoop because I've recently been using it for the last couple of weeks. Mm. And it's made, I mean, I've always known sleep is important, have good quality sleep. But when you see the data on your wrist when you wake up, it's hard to avoid it, yeah. which is that whole thing like knowledge is power. You also can't be held prisoner to it. You know, if you wake up in the morning and, and you know, you feel good, but your numbers are a little bit off, like you can't let that overly influence your behavior, I think. So it's a balance. Like you don't want to be a prisoner to the device. You know what I mean? I think it's a tool just like anything else. And the game that I play with myself now is, you know, I've been wearing this thing for, I don't know, coming up on a year at this point. I try to predict what all the markers are before I look. And I've gotten better and better at that. So, because I want to just be able to feel it and go, this is I, this is this is what my resting heart rate is. This is what I'm pretty sure my heart rate variability is going to be this. This is how long I was in this sleep state. It's kind of like when in swimming, you get so in touch with your body that you almost don't need to look at the pace clock to know what your interval you know times are because you're so in tune. And I'm always trying to look, I'm always trying to have that kind of integration with myself. So I try to use it as a tool, but not be overly beholden to it at the same time. Well, that's the, that self-awareness is the same with adventure racing because you can't wear a watch. Um, it's purely just map and compass work and you're out in the middle of the bush and the terrain can be incredibly dense. Um, but often you start to really start to gauge how far you're going and how fast you're going. And that's just purely based on knowing your body, knowing your movement um, in different types of terrain. And I actually find that really liberating when you don't need to have any devices, but you can have a pretty accurate gauge on where you are and how you're moving. Mm. Yeah, and that's the difference between being an experienced athlete and like a novice or a newcomer like that. That like you know exactly kind of, you know, where you're at, what your capacity is, what you're capable of, how fast you're going, how much, you know, exertion you can afford to put out without sacrificing like the long-term, you know, goal at hand. Like all of that just comes with years and years and years of, of doing it. And I think when we wear these GPS watches or these devices, we kind of delegate that to technology. Mm -hmm. And it's important, you know, just as human beings to to make sure that you, you, you're still taking responsibility for that for yourself. You know, that idea like, oh, if I didn't, if, if it's not on Strava or I didn't track it on the Garmin, <laughs> like it didn't happen. Of course it happened, right? Like you're missing the opportunity to, to you know, have that 
connectedness with yourself and, and what can be gleaned or learned from that? No, well, the question really is, you know, why are you doing it if it's just to be up on Strava so right. other people can see it? Yeah. Um, maybe you should be qu- having a bit of a reflection on your uh, <laughs> intrinsic motivation uh-huh. behind that movement as well. One thing I've got to say with um, through COVID and being home so much more, I have just learned to be outdoors without a watch, without even worrying about the pace and just kind of being outdoors because when your other mobility is taken away – you really start to relish in what you do have. And it's kind of, I haven't ever lost the love of the run, but I've appreciated nature and the environment in which I get to do it in so much more. It's so nice to leave the watch at home yeah. and just go out and be like, who cares? I'm just here to have fun. Yeah. Yeah. This is the end of episode one with Rich Roll. I hope you are loving this conversation so far and enjoying being in the space with us. Episode two is already live, so you just need to get out of this one and jump into the next one. Hope you enjoy. 